Welcome to Arts Monday Simpoesis on ESA Radio 89.7 FM. This program takes place on the Gadigal land of the Yora Nation, traditional custodians of this land, and I pay my respect to the elders, past, present, and yet to come. I'm in the studio here this morning, joined by the artist Lux Eterna. She's about to take part in the March Dance Festival, developing a multi-channel dance video work, Eight Day, which is rooted in land-inspired sensitivity and explores the ideas of embodied gaze and haptic visuality, and we'll go in details of all that in just a few minutes. Good morning, Lux. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning, Ira, and thank you for having me on the show, and thank you to all the listeners tuning in as well. How is your morning so far? What's the beginning of the day usually for you? Well, I'm not working today, <laughs> so, so it's a real pleasure to come in and, and be here and, yeah, have a chat and listen to great music. And I've allocated time until this show ends for just to move at that pace. So yeah. it's lovely. Are you an early riser normally? Is the morning the time when you function the best? I wouldn't say the best, but it's definitely more left brain, organisational, that kind of stuff. I'm able to charge through administrative. And sometimes I use the mornings for really stewing my life decisions and choices. And yeah, there's a little bit of dreaming that happens in the morning as well. Do you dream literally as well? Do you hold things like dream diaries? And I do. I'm a big dreamer. So I think this is why my sleep is so sacred to me. Yeah, I have some pretty crazy dreams that I absolutely love and enjoy having. But I don't keep dream diaries. But they're quite vivid. And usually when I'm not having to wake up and go off to work, I can sit with them over my morning tea and, and just kind of make sense or not make sense out of them. Just let them be. Mm. I know you just came back from overseas as well, which is a new thing again for all of us, it seems for me, like another reality. You came from the States, from Chicago, I believe, where you exhibited some of your work. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, long-haul flying is, is very unfamiliar at the moment. It's very surreal. The short flights are okay because I had to jump around a couple of cities. And yeah, but flying there and flying back really took it out of me. But I was happy to be home, so... Usually I don't get jet lag on the way there, but I get it on the way back. But I seem to have just acclimatized to this time zone very quickly, which I'm happy about. Mm. And uh, what were you exhibiting in the States? Uh, I've got a photograph from a, a work that I'd made here in 2017 uh, while on residency at Bundanon. And then it became a series that launched at the Peacock Gallery in Auburn called Decolonizing the Gaze. And the portrait, the auto-portrait of myself out of that managed to be selected for this group exhibition. And it launched at Northwestern University in Chicago, at Evanston, Chicago. So we're going there for the opening and a couple of artist talks and mm. that kind of thing. And then I think that exhibition is going to go on for about six months and tour various academic and arts institutions and galleries. At the end of this week, you're turning on to another project, uh, which is your dance video work called Eight Day and you're developing it as part of the March Dance Residency and this project sees you collaborate with six dancers I believe and explore the relationship between the body and the landscape as well as the relationship between the body and the camera 
Before we dive a bit deeper into all these details and unpack the work in all its layers, could you tell us a bit about what a day is for you? And how would you describe it in, in just a few words to start us off? Mm. A good question. It's always like these are always the hardest questions when someone asks you to distill it in a very short paragraph or lesser amount of words. It's just something that's really come about from my practice and my practices over the last 10 years. And you start doing one thing and then you're like, okay, there's something here. I'm going to keep doing it. And for me, a lot of what I do as an artist, the impetus for it comes from embodied practices, like even, you know, my drawing and filming, like I really have to be in my body to do it. Or if I'm doing drawing for too long, I still have to get up and do something in the body. And then, you know, having worked around a lot of dancers for the last 10, 15 years and with my camera, there was kind of this new new dialogue that came about from camera and body and that was a feedback that I was getting from performers that there was a sensitivity and a receptivity of my camera work with them and I guess that was the first driving tenant but as the project evolves it starts to open up and become quite big in terms of what else it's including so it's meant to be I guess a hybrid dance video work it's bringing together lens-based media and screen media with embodied practices and specifically this embodied practice that's taking part on very ancient and sacred land here in in Australia. Mm -hmm. And does the video work itself have a narrative of the sort or a plot that you're working with? Not necessarily yeah I can hear one of my old film teachers go this these things never work <laughs> um there's still storyboarding absolutely there's some kind of articulation and mapping of ideas and sequences and and experiences that need to happen doesn't need to be in sequence. I do like working with circular narratives if anything nothing has to be linear with me, but there's not necessarily a plot. There's just kind of loose sketches of ideas to anchor us in. And then we see what kind of comes about from that, from developments, even from rehearsals and from being present on the land. Because something that you create in a studio, it may not necessarily work out in the landscape and vice versa. And then either of those things might not necessarily work for camera in either of those spaces. Yeah, we will talk a bit more about this land-inspired sensitivity, which you are, I think, touching on right now. But when you talk about the ideas, the initial ideas you're working with, uh, what are some of those that you're giving to your dancers as images to Mm. carry in their bodies? Having trained in Bhutto and body weather and a lot of these kind of dances where, you know, it's about having this omnicentral awareness as a driving force. It's also about opening the body up to receive impulse, to be receptive, to be a conduit. So that's kind of the tenet and working from that space allows you to to just kind of create from a very present place as opposed to this um, in a very architecture, very structured idea that you, you may get, you know, quite attached to. And then with body weather, we do work a lot with sometimes images, but also sensitivity and imagination, you know, these kind of pseudo imaginings, pseudo sensations, physical sensations. And it's, for me, it's been a very, it's a deep, profound process. It really connects me in with the body. It also connects me in with, you know, otherworldly experiences, things I can't quite articulate. So that's been quite special for me. Specifically connecting to body weather and the dance history and dance training in the past. But I also feel 
like it's also perhaps a bit of my cultural heritage and a bit of my yearning to have that dialogue with the land you know I've just just to give you some context I have recently my father's recently passed away and and my heritage is Palestinian so you know just growing up and constantly listening to him talk about his connection to land his you know the fruit trees the orchards the sea the mountains the snow everything the desert and how different it is and I've kind of adopted that for my own my own life here mm-hmm. and I guess COVID the last two years with the pandemic it was really hard because I, I couldn't go camping anywhere so this mm-hmm. is usually a massive recharge for me it's a massive reset it just opens me up to a lot of new ideas and I think there's there's those elements coming through as well so mm-hmm. it is the training it is the embodied practices it's my heritage it's also yeah wanting to kind of awaken us to sensitivity again you know mm-hmm. I think we're living in a world where we're watching horrific things happening on screen all the time and we're becoming desensitized so, yeah, I wonder if there's like some way with dancers, with bodies, with landscapes and with different camera approaches that we can create a kind of a soft, sensitive and embodied sense of viewing and spectatorship. Mm. You mentioned just then desert and uh, Australian desert is the landscape in which you will shoot this film. What draws you to this particular environment and how does the image, I guess, that you carry in yourself of this environment inform the creative choices that you are making at this stage in development? Mm. Yeah, deserts have always attracted me, even though they've been really austere and harsh terrains and places. But I guess that's part of the experience. You go out there and you sit and things happen. Every time I've been to the desert, it can go really, really well. It can go really, really intensely. <laughs> But every time I come back, I'm changed. There's something deep, like, you know, there's a depth in my being that's had space to actually integrate. I've got more resolve in my character. I think that those vast spaces where, you know, the desert was once underwater now becomes this dry, mm. arid, empty environment. It's actually not empty, but it opens us up to these existential contemplations. And it's, I think sometimes I'm also drawn to the process of that, that austerity, I think so many times we we move towards comfort and that's great you know I'm all about moving (laughs) where it feels good but I think there's also something to be said for going to places that challenge you that show you deeper aspects of your being Mm -hmm. Um, because I I can imagine for some people like I'm very comfortable in my alone time but I can imagine for some people to be out there with landscape that goes for miles and feels really dry and looks unforgiving, Mm. that it can be very confronting for them. How are you preparing your dancers for this interaction that will eventually happen? What are some of the techniques that you're giving them to develop this sensitivity, this land-based sensitivity you're speaking about, to respond to terrain, but also to cope with all these things that you have just mentioned? I guess that's not just taking from dance and embodied practices, but all sorts of other types of psycho-spiritual practices like meditation, somatics. Even things like journaling has been really profound. And this practice, I do a practice of containment. And, you know, just not trying to understand, not trying to describe, to articulate, to define. Sometimes it's just a really kind of generous giving of oneself over to it. 
So that's also been some of the dialogue that I've shared with dancers to just be open to that. And it might be very uncomfortable for for some performers to be out there in that space. It might be great for most of them, but there might be one or two that, you know, they find it very confronting. But how do you sit in that? How do you hold that within you and just go, you know, I'm here, I'm going to be here for a few days. How do I move from that place? How do I connect with other people from that place? How do I confront any anxieties or fears that may come up? in that space I mean having said that the Australian desert for me has been remarkably gentle you know even though a lot of you know like Australian cinema paints it out to be as like a really harsh territory for only settler men it's actually been quite the opposite experience traveling and driving around central desert Australia there's just been a remarkable softness and gentleness in the landscape and I feel really held out there so I guess there's been this desire to want to share it with other people that have a dance practice and an embodied practice and to do that collectively together and see what emerges. Mm. And on this project, you're working with a group of female dancers. At some point, you were mentioning the concept of desert mothers. Is this still something that's relevant to the work? And if yeah, so, abs- how does it inform it? What does it mean to be a desert mother? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of different threads. And you know, even answering to the Australian cinematic tropes, you look through Australian cinema and a lot of it's dominated by men in that landscape on screen. So I think several years ago I had this thought that I wanted to challenge that. But as I started, you know, writing more and developing this pitch, this idea a lot further, and I had to research it because I was, I was doing a screenwriting course at um, university and one of the questions was I needed to research why am I doing this? Why do I have a desire to make this film? And... I look back and that's what I'm saying. I think there's parts of my cultural heritage that kind of drive me without me being aware of it. And going back to deserts and that time and space and that ancient world where the Holy Land is. And apparently the desert mothers were, you know, erased. They were absent from the books and the texts, the sacred spiritual texts. And apparently there were desert fathers, but there were desert mothers. And their experiences, which were obviously a lot more embodied, they were about just being on the land, sitting, breathing, meditating, just being being in the body. All their wisdoms and knowledges weren't recorded or celebrated. And then all these kind of monotheistic, religious, sacred, spiritual texts that came about that really kind of are the driving force behind a lot of how we live today in the world, the texts only written by men, by our fathers, so it's just wanting to kind of flip the switch there and subvert it, but also to move away from that erasure and include that. And I'm not like I'm not really into the dichotomies of male and female either. I'm really interested in the many different archetypes of humankind, whether they be the elder, the sage, the child, the teacher, the healer. I think we have so many of those elements to integrate. But yeah, this is this is just I think because it's just come about from an innate drive to make this work and yeah it feels like it needs to be female dancers that go out there to create this now in this contemporary climate and see what comes out of it Mm. a couple of years ago you made another short dance film called Oran Oksarima and in it you're also inspired by practices of Bodhiveda and Bhutto and in this film we see five female bodies in another sort of uh, desert landscape it's uh, Port Stephens, Anna Bay mm-hmm. and there are also themes of overland travel and searching and seeking in it and as well decay and renewal 
when I spoke to you a couple of years ago about this film, you mentioned that it is a part of a trilogy. It was a second part of the trilogy. So is Eight Day a third and final part of this? Are they connected in some way? It's a good question because I think it did start out like that, but it's not. I think The Eighth Day has a life of its own that's separate. And I do see the previous two works, Dune and Oranox Anima, as a kind of prologue to, to this. But this work, I feel, will be a standalone and the other two will be definitely those contextual works that give that background understanding to my process and to how this next stage came about. Mm. Yeah, because I think stylistically it's going to be a little bit different, even though there are elements of female bodies in, you know, draped fabric <laughs> in the desert landscape. Mm. But, you know, that there is. there's. I think that searching and that yearning and that journeying and the pilgrimage and the, you know, the migrations, those visual elements from previous video works, I think that was indicative or emblematic of that drive to kind of return to an origin return to origin stories and actually author some of these origin stories from you know a more lived in embodied experience as, a, as opposed to this kind of patriarchal ordained cosmology. Mm. Stylistically you mentioned it will be different and one of the key differences as far as I understand is that while with Oranoxanima you worked with wide lens angle and the camera was quite removed from the dancers and mostly still this time you're taking quite a different approach, almost radically different approach, where you are working with handheld camera and you're going into the scene with the dancers moving with their bodies and dancing with them, essentially. It's something I've always wanted to do. And when I have worked with camera and bodies before in performance spaces and dancers in you know residencies, there has been a lot of that handheld camera and moving very intimately with performers. I guess with Oranox Anima, it was given, you know, the situation and the weather, you know, the inclement weather we were having at the time. I was kind of limited by that. We had to shoot it in between like crazy weather. So we'd just be sitting in a car waiting to get out there. And then we'd take those moments and quickly do it. So I really didn't have the space to take all that equipment out, load it up onto my body, strap it in and then, you know, do these really slow moving choreographic articulations between body and camera and myself. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm hoping this next work will be able to show that contrast because I will still have a lot of those static, slow-moving, wide-scape, you know, wide-angle landscape images. Mm. But, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to play with the contrast of that and then working very closely with the body and the body in landscape and the body with camera. Mm. This particular way of filming has also an effect on the viewer when we as a viewer come closer to those bodies it engages something that is often called in art history at least haptic visuality and I know that it's something that you are also interested in and basically it means that rather than just watching a film we are sensing it through our bodies we are experiencing viscerally not just through cognition what draws you to this particular way of working and why do you find it important I guess in this day and age to engage haptic visuality Mm -hmm. I think it's vital like it's it's a massive driving force behind this kind of dance video work interdisciplinary practice that I have. There's so much to answer <laughs> for this question. 
I guess having worked in commercial photography and then, you know, watching films and then slowly moving away from things like Hollywood because of, I called it that periscope, you know, and I I do, I I still like action films. I mean, my favourite genre is science fiction. But when you watch camera work, there's always this constant chasing of an action and Mm -hmm. it feels like this really overactive periscope that comes out and just chases things and looks at it acutely. And I see that as a metaphor for life. I mean, I see it in academia and health. We, we only look at something acutely and not in context of everything around it from its people, from, mm. you know, its background, from its futures. So this haptic visuality is a move away from this heavy, heavily, you know, ocular-centric saturation of visual media. How do we see but how do we also feel what we see? How do we establish relationships with who's on screen? A lot of the time watching just mainstream cinema and Hollywood and all that, I feel very disconnected from from the performer on, on screen, especially mm-hmm. when it is female, and kind of wanting to reestablish some sensitivity, you know, rather than treating performers like objects, how are they subjects and how are they having a relationship with this device, with this lens, with this camera, in order to extend a relationship beyond the lens, the screen and the viewer. And it's also a way, this haptic visuality or being able to sense the film beyond just sight, could it also be a way to help us reestablish or reawaken pathways to sensitivity in us again? Mm -hmm. Because like I was saying earlier, we watch so much atrocity through Mm -hmm. screen media and we're becoming desensitised to it. I'm not saying, you know, it's just the way it's filmed, there's a lot of influencing factors but yeah Mm. I'm asking questions around how can we use lens and screen media to inform more sensitive approaches to viewing and observing and witnessing other people and are more than human kin as well. Mm. Yeah one one thing that I feel this um, haptic visuality enables is when we observe things with our eyes there is this critical distance and critical stance towards things while when we come closer to the image through our bodies there is a greater sense of empathy so it develops environmental care as well to feel involved in this I guess interaction and this sensitivity sensitivity translates to us as well as viewers not just those that are on screen we can only hope, you know. I mean, this is, you know, this is uh, one of the, the, the driving questions is like, can we do this with screen? As you know, mm-hmm. like given the climate of the last two years and being trapped mm-hmm. in our homes and working from home and working by interfacing with screens, mm-hmm. it's like how can we rethink how screen media is made and how we interact with it? So, yeah, just I guess this work is there's, there's a creative tenet to this work, but there's also a lot of theoretical questions I have around how visual media is made and how we can use it to create sensitivity and awaken that. Yeah, it's just, I guess it's the basis of a lot of questions that I have and some of it will still be practical explorations. Like I'm still asking questions while I work with the camera, while I work with dancers in that landscape. And some of these questions will be asked this week during the development of a day as part of March Dance Festival. You're on Easter Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday Sympoesis. And I'm in conversation with dance filmmaker and artist Lux Eterna. As I just mentioned, we are talking about her project A Day, which is being developed through a March Dance residency. We will take a short music break. And when we come back, we will find out uh, what are some of the visual references Lux is drawing from 
from in developing this work and why she at times describes this work as a hybrid dance. Monday Simpoesis, streaming to you from the Gedigal land of the Eora Nation. I'm in conversation this morning with dance filmmaker Lux Eterna, talking about her project Eight Day, which is being developed through a Maj Dance residency and will be shot in Australian desert later this year. I'm curious, Lux, why Eight Day as a title? Is there a significance to number eight? I think this ties in with the whole Desert Mothers, but unknowingly, I used to go to Germany to do these psycho-spiritual workshops for the Enneagram like over 10 years ago and they talked about this concept of der Attentag which meant the eighth day and it was kind of like this for me I read it as futures creating futures creating new worlds beyond the current constructs that we are familiar and it's about challenging this seven-day regiment in which we are which we find ourselves so the eighth day for me is it's it's a new origin story it's a new genesis of some sorts that's more inclusive that factors in voices that have been erased and embodied practices that have been erased from sacred text so yeah it, that's kind of where it came from I do like the number eight as well and It was meant to be a working title, but it's sticking at the moment and I do really like it because I feel like there is that connection to deconstructing the sacred texts and all that kind of stuff. Mm. One of the things or one of the expressions used on Marge Dance website is that the work explores relational co-emergence. Can you talk to us a bit about what that means and signifies? I think the, I mean, the word that, it's kind of circulating around academia is more emergence, but I've I've kind of called it co-emergence, if that's such a thing. And I did mention something about, you know, when we look through the camera very acutely or we look at medical issues very acutely, we're not actually seeing things in their context. We're not seeing things or people as relational beings and experiences even. And even though there's no strict script, there are storyboarding elements, there's some kind of mapping of what's going to happen, there's still space ordained specifically for that experience of relational co-emergence. And a lot of the time when you work non-verbally with groups of people, and I guess performing artists will know this, there's a there's something that arises in that moment between you and the other performers and an audience and the space that can never be captured again. So I'm really interested in, in working with that, not necessarily capturing it, but really being present and open to it and seeing how it can inform what comes next, how we can communicate that we are what's happening in that live moment there. Mm. And when working with groups and people and collaboratively, collectively, is how do we bring in some kind of a social awareness? Mm. Um, I'm also studying a course with MIT called ULAB, which is about social presencing. And a lot of the critique is, you know, everyone's doing this self-help stuff and meditating and, you know, becoming more reflective and mindful. But what good is it if we can't do it together? And there's this real kind of push for social collective practices, pro-social collaboration that we are aware of ourselves and we are aware of our context in the space of that moment. 
And I think the dance, Bhutan Body Weather, has, has already been doing it because you're working with sensitivity mm-hmm. and opening yourself up to that. Yep. So it's, it's nothing new. I think it's just being articulated with these words such as relational, such as co-emergence or emergence. This is very ancient practice stuff. It's been around for eons. People have always done it. We've actually moved away from it. So, yeah, it's just finding a way back and seeing how becoming aware of that can inform creative output and also... I'm curious about how to, you know, map out this process, this creative process as a framework for more pro-social experiences in, in other industries and fields. You're mentioning body weather and you're speaking about this ability to respond to whatever arises and what comes in the moment. So in body weather, for instance, we practice how to be at the mercy of the elements, at the mercy of the weather, and whether this weather is outside or inside, internal, inside of us. In this practice, we, I suppose, develop a certain flexibility in order to be fluid in these responses. And I know that as a maker, you're also somebody who works with structures. You're very organized, you have clear plans, and you marry that with a deep intention to also allow yourself to be a channel for the work to emerge through you. So I'm curious, how do you go about this balance in a way and whether having a clear structure actually creates space and enables you to become this uh, vessel and a channel to be in this more meditative, fluid, intuitive states when it comes to the Mm. moment of decision, I guess. I think that's a really, really good question. And up until the pandemic, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Having a super clear, yeah, like drawn out structure does help. You know, that clarity is is a driving force. I've always found in my experience when you're super clear on what it is that you want and how you want it to happen, things just kind of fall into place. But there also needs to be a harmony, a balance between that and receptivity to what can emerge. And we're Mm -hmm. seeing this with the pandemic as well. Like I've had plans for this since three years ago and it's been hindered and halted. There's still a plan. There's still some anchor points and, you know, sentinels that I orient to that oversee the project but I'm also having to adapt and yield to what's going on you know Mm. with changes and hiccups and and you know I think the the biggest one right now is these atrophied bodies coming back into the dance space Mm -hmm. the performance space and the camera the lens space and how do we actually work with that and you know I was chatting to one of my friends who's a social designer and a strategist and you know, she was saying to me, well, maybe that's something for you to embrace as part of this post-pandemic climate. How do we come back into our bodies is, is one of the questions that you can ask. How do we orchestrate ourselves in, in that way now? Mm. What does it mean to move again after being seated and you know, screen interfacing for so long? What does it mean to be outside in a desert landscape, which you know, mm. I have not been able to go to for a couple of years? Mm. One of the things that it seems to me you're quite drawn to is earthy movements, grounded movements. And I read this beautiful thing in a book I've been reading, and I find it really inspiring to get back into the body. It's called How to Land by Anne Cooper Albright. And there is a whole chapter about gravitational force. And it speaks about the exhaustion that we are feeling these days, the Mm. fatigue, the burnout, and how letting go to the ground is actually the remedy that we need Am I right to say that you are drawn to to the movements that are grounded? 
Absolutely. I also find it's easier to work with embodied camera choreography with more earthier movements as well. It kind of creates that slow, unctuous resonance. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I also feel like there's a strength and there's a resolve in these earthier movements, these kind of lower body, these, these bodies that are, you know, kind of driven by our lower gravitational centers. There's a kind of a laterality, like, I don't know, a lateralness. There's a breadth of it. You know, when you mm-hmm. move from that place, it feels wide. It takes up space. And for me, it is. It's like sinking to the land, but, you know, sinking and then spreading. That's yeah. the kind of image I am you know, like to work with. Mm. And then gathering that up back in with you when you come up. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly what she's writing about, how in order to lift up, we need to mm. sink down first. Or we need to push, even when we walk, we actually push the ground first Absolutely. in order to leap forward. So there is this sense of anchoring that needs to happen first for that fluidity actually to, to be available to us. Absolutely. And I think that's why I've always been, you know, drawn to performers and dancers is because of that, you know, to go up, you must go down and they, they don't just know what they practice it, you know, and it's instinctive in their bodies. And there's, there's that grace, you know, even when you watch them walk, they walk very differently to, you know, the common masses. There's a real earthiness and a grounding in their feet and their heels of just watching their foot articulations across the, the ground. As we become kind of overstimulated by all these technologies, I think it's really important to find ways of how to ground in our body because we are very head-based and there is this kind of body-mind schizophrenia that I feel has overtaken us at the moment. Mm. One of the things that grounds you and you were mentioning that being in the nature is the way to anchor and center and get inspired. And you are planning to film this work in the deserts do you find it important to spend as much as time in this landscape to sit with it, be in it, before you actually go and film there? How important is being in it for a while? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I've kind of mapped out sometimes that I would like to go out to the desert before I get there to do filming and production, only because I haven't been out in a couple of years. And, you know, I've always jokingly said, you know, <laughs> you go you go camping in the nature But I've always been, that's a bit tongue-in-cheek in in how our relationship has been with it. You know, we go to the nature on the weekend as opposed to considering us as a part of it um, and opening ourselves up to that dialogue and the decentering of us. You know, when we we are of it and in it, we don't visit it. You know, we we can't own it, we can't pillage it, we can't do all sorts Mm. of things with it. You know, and again, it's that containment just coming back and, and just being... So, yeah, there's plans to get out there and connect in with that energy definitely again, which I think is really important and crucial before I go out. Mm. And just to also see, you know, what – because like I said, every time you go out to the desert, it's a different experience. Like I don't know what I'm going to get. We started this show talking about sleeping and dreaming, and I'm curious when you are in the desert, do you dream differently? And also – did any aspects of this project emerge from dreams? Are you the kind of artist who gets inspiration from dreams? Not necessarily. If I if I made f- films or work based on my dreams, I would I would think I'd be a total surrealist artist. <laughs> like I don't think my work would make sense at all. So no, they're not <laughs> they're not the driving force or, you know, the visual impetus for what I create. I do see a lot of it as a lot of my subconscious 
uh, work over time, I see a lot of it as a sensitivity that I'm experiencing while being here that I obviously need to process to integrate. I see dreams a very somatic experience actually, you know, mm-hmm. like it's it's very much connected to how I've rested physically that night. Mm-hmm. And when I'm in the desert, I do dream. Even just driving, you know, if I'm driving out there for hours in that landscape into these vanishing points that when the sun hits the road looks like it's about to go into the sky, you know, these thoughts that I feel aren't even mine come to me, you know, mm-hmm. questions that I I know I'm not asking are being asked and, you know, memories and experiences that I've felt long forgotten just come back out of nowhere. So it is, it's a really interesting mm-hmm. experience that opens me up to, you know, that that. That there is a there's a cosmology in the desert, I mm-hmm. guess you know. And I've always said going to the desert is like a really slow acid trip. It's just mm-hmm. yeah, it's on slow motion. Mm-hmm. Like everything just opens up, and you have no choice but to be really grounded in that moment. When you were shooting Oran Oksanima, your previous dance film, you only spent a day with dancers on the site, and the whole project was filmed within the day and this time you are intending to spend a few extra days with dancers there how important is to have this extra time and what happens in these other days that is really valuable for the project yeah um, this is a yeah interesting question because I I've been quite lucky in my past that I've had these things these ideas that come and then they just happen And they happen really quickly and they manifest just like that. And I always um, supported my process with Jodorowsky who says, you know, I'm an artist, I just work. Sometimes I get the idea and the work just comes because I'm not one of those artists that keeps churning out work after work. I'm not one that produces something every month or... Yeah, so it was really interesting, but this time I've had to think about it. And I have been asked, well, why don't you just do this one like Oranox Anima? Why don't you go out just for a day and, and see what comes about? And I'm thinking, well, I don't want that same experience. If that's what came about without having too much intention, mm. I'm interested to see what will come about with a lot more intention. I'm interested to see what will happen you know, day after day. Because when you're in the desert and you stay more and more, like things start to shift, things start to happen. And to do that collectively with a group of people and awaken ourselves, our sensitivity, our somatic sensitivity to that and see how we can work with it. I'm also really curious. Like I said, this isn't just the making of an artwork. It's about process. It's about Mm. new world making. It's about playing with a social framework that perhaps can be adapted and scaffolded upon in other fields and industries. Mm. I'm really interested in that. Mm. Speaking about social framework and process, one of the things that you are engaging in while developing this work is dialogue with the First Nations people in the area that you're planning to shoot in. Can you talk to us a bit about this cultural interchange and how do you approach this dialogue and what has emerged through it so far? This has been really important to me. I feel, I mean, I'm born in Australia, but growing up here, I neither, like I felt neither here nor there. I was neither fully my parents' heritage, but I was never really, you know, what people would call Australian culture. And so instead, I looked to the land and out of that, you know, I was just always wanting to be outside and go on camping trips and walks and just sit. And so I I feel like that that kind of segued me into deepening or wanting to deepen my understanding of Indigenous cultures and then it connected me in my parents' journey as well. Um, But, you know, I was really trying to 
look for ways that we can also see interchange between First Nations, between settler and migrant settler cultures, because we're all here now, you know, and how, how do we create socially cohesive societies and communities? So I've proposed my idea. I sent it through and the Aboriginal Advisory Group and Land Council out there, they were really welcoming of my idea. They said this sounds like very resonant with the kind of work that we hope gets done out in the desert, out on the sacred land. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't met with them yet. I'm hoping to before I go out to film. And I think that's part of the the ongoing dialogue. And I've I've included them in the editing process after before I do the final edits mm-hmm. to make sure that it still is culturally safe and culturally sensitive to them. I didn't know that. That's wonderful. Given that you are just mentioning editing, it was something I wanted to ask you because I know that Oranok Sanima was edited in in very, very, I guess, internalized process. You were by yourself for 16 hours a day (laughs) with these images, trying to be as sensitive as possible to the bodies that you're working with. And I guess as an editor, you're choreographing still in a way because you're stitching these shapes together. And this time you're also working with the multi-channel in mind and you are at this stage already planning for it to be seen in the gallery context rather than in the cinema and obviously given that it's Mm -hmm. multi-channel, that's the environment where we will encounter it. When you're developing shots right now, when you're storyboarding, as you say, are you already thinking about the way you will put it together and does that already inform the way you will film it? Absolutely. There is, there's definitely intentionality around what I'm going to be shooting, imagining that there's either going to be two or three channels. And I think there's going to be a lot of footage that I'm going to have to go through because we're going to be trying to do a lot of things while we're out there filming and doing the production. And then things will emerge when I'm editing as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of both. Like I said, I wanted to work with the contrast, which the multi-channel work will allow me to do between space, body and, you know, and sensation, for example. And, you know, I wanted to work with soundscape as well. So I'm having that specifically composed for this work to create that, that embodied sensitivity while you watch. There's stuff that's mapped out, there's stuff that's storyboarded and there's stuff that will probably just come up spontaneously while you're out there. And there's stuff that you have, I mean, this is the, the nature of filming what I do it's not narrative there's things that you'll film and you think this is going to be so great and then when you're sitting behind the editing screen it's just no I can't use this anymore and then there's stuff that you may have shot just really loosely and you're thinking there's something there there's something in that Mm. it's interesting because those you know the filming process and being in it is also so very different sometimes to the editing it's it's like two separate worlds Mm. it's like how do you be aware to how you're going to edit it later like yeah. I said, specifically with this kind of work that's circular, it's not yeah. so linear. But I, yeah, I guess you have to think in advance because you don't want to come to that editing booth and think, oh, I, if only I took this shot. Or So it's lots of pre-thinking and pre-planning yeah. and trying to take as many things or as much footage as you can even if it's extra but at least which you I'm have doing it. yeah yeah like mm-hmm. I've got I've got my storyboarding book and I'm mapping out a lot of cinematography cues and scenes that need to be done and need to be done like several times in different ways that's the thing so I'm working with mm-hmm. a couple of different lenses and different cameras and different angles and um, depths so it's mm-hmm. just kind of working working with that fractal even yeah mm-hmm. 
And you mentioned that uh, you have also engaged a sound designer to work on a soundtrack or a soundscape. Is it something that you're already working with, the sound, or are you at the moment working to silence? Is there a soundtrack in your mind already as you are directing dancers or training with them? Yeah, definitely there is. I think it's it's hard to to make the sound. There is actually some loose sketch of sound that's already come up, which I'm really excited about. I yeah, I look. I love sound. If I had any extra hours in the day, that's one thing I would love to to play with. But you know, you've just got to choose your thing and do that. You're a musician as well, and no, I was maker. trained. Yeah, yeah, I was trained in in classical music, so <laughs> that's my background. Um, you played an instrument, piano, for yeah. years. But you know, I really liked electronic music. I love ambient music. Mm-hmm. I love soundscape. Like I, mm-hmm. I just yeah, mm-hmm. I love all this stuff. But yeah, it's again, and I think it's a couple of different elements coming together synchronistically close to each other's time. And that's really hard to get. But there are sounds that I have. And, you know, I'll hopefully be including some of the desert soundscapes that I've recorded with my own mic. I've been working with low frequency sounds and layering that into the soundtrack. Mm. So yeah, it's there's going to be an element of, you know, experiment (laughs) with the sound Mm -hmm. the skeleton is there and we're playing with it and then Mm -hmm. I think as we get closer to production that will start to take more shape and then the final touches will be put on while I edit one thing that you also mentioned when describing this film is this term hybrid dance and you spoke to me about your interest in creating this ambiguous space where we are asking ourselves is this dance or is it something else so if it's not dance, what is this other thing? And also, why are you inspired to work within this liminal space of something that is one thing and maybe something else as well? I guess maybe it, it might tie into, you know, my decolonial practice. And I feel these Eastern dances like Body Weather and Buto or the synthesis between East and West is about breaking that typical choreography down. And when I've put my previous dance works up against other dance films, they don't really, it doesn't really look like a dance film. And I've had that, I've had that feedback. I've had it as a criticism. I've had it as a celebratory comment. So I am, I'm very happy with that ambiguity. But I also feel like if it's just dance, it's people who don't come from that background, maybe they won't access it. And, you know, I'm really working with the body. I feel like I want it to be able to, you know, be accessed by a lot more people, even though my work is very niche. <laughs> How do I reconcile that? Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's definitely an interesting aspect to this work. I am going to have choreographed elements and sequences in it, mm-hmm. but then I think the majority of it will be unchoreographed and a bit loose. And depending on how and what gets shot and what camera scenes that I have and footage that I have to work with, that'll all change it again. And yeah, I am comfortable with the ambiguity of like, what is a dancing body? You know, is it something that purposefully goes out and creates choreography? And I think what's driving me is that whole practice in Buto and Body Weather about being receptive to impulse. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't create the dance, the dance dances you, you know, and how do we open ourselves, our sensitivities, our, our soma up to that, to receive that? 
You're on Easter Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday Symposis, and I'm in conversation with dance filmmaker and artist Laxaterna, and we are talking about her video dance project that will be multi-channel and intended for a gallery context. It's called Aid Day, and it is being developed as part of this year's March Dance Festival, and Lux will be filming this project towards the end of this year in the Australian desert. Now that we spoke about dance, and you did say that there will be a choreography. Another thing that I believe you're drawn to is synchronicity and harmony. And you have spoken to me before when we had a conversation about Oran Oksanima, how in the Western dance often these days we don't have this synchronicity and harmony. And one of the theatre or dance theatre groups you're inspired by is Tao Dance Theatre. I suppose these are some of the visual references you're drawing to as well. Mm. or drawing from for this film yeah definitely I'm, I'm waiting for them to come to Australia please somebody if you're listening bring them out here <laughs> it's just it's not enough just to watch their videos yeah that's I, I guess I'm really intrigued by that synchronicity and when you and I actually started watching martial arts films over COVID and again the choreography of those fight scenes <laughs> and the synchronicity is it's just meticulous mm. And I think that comes from perhaps that really that awareness of being a contextual being. Like when you're in the space, you're with everybody. You're with the space as well. And there's a real, you know, like an omnicentral awareness that takes place in the being and as a collective hub as well. I mean, it'll be interesting coming out of lockdown and the mm. pandemic and going into that chorus workspace. I've always loved this idea of working with chorus, with working with multiple bodies, because I think there's a there's something very powerful about it. And I don't know if it's because I've, I know this is on a long shot, but growing up with the, the cartoons that I did, it was always, you know, <laughs> it was about many bodies coming to together as one, mm. like Voltron, you know. <laughs> it was that kind of thing of, yeah, this unified collective somatic expression as one body and I mean one of my favorite music video clips it's um Jamie XX and it's mm. called gosh but there's a lot of of that chorus work and I just find when you see humans work together in that synchronicity there's something very powerful there's mm. something it's very ritualized almost about it you know there's something very sacred in that as well when people can drop their egos step outside of themselves and be part of something greater mm. Mm. That seems to speak to me again about that relational co-emergence. Mm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It's an, you know, I, I've had it with performance. I've strangely, and I think sports people understand it as well. You know, I, I used to row and there were moments where you would just hit that spot with your other three rowers and it was just time and space just shifted and you mm. were in absolute synchronicity. And in that synchronicity, there's no... There's no staccato. There's nothing awkward. There's just pure flow. Mm. So I'm interested in those spaces as well, those happenstances. You know, what is it to be in pure flow and what is it to be in pure flow together? To find out more about this project, head to marchdance.com. To find out more about Lux Eterna's work, you can go to her website. It's luxeterna.tv or to her Instagram and the handle is luxeterna.tv. TV, is that correct? That's right, Lux Eterna TV. You're on ESA Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday Symposis, and we are slowly coming to the end of today's show. I just want to thank Lux Eterna, who has joined me in the studio today. 
and taken time to talk to us about her work. Thank you so much, Ira. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to be here and yeah, chatting with you. And thanks to all your listeners. If you have missed parts of this show or you would like to listen back, you can head to eastsidefm.org slash artsmonday. And I will be with you in two weeks' time talking to more artists and writers whose work take inspiration from the natural worlds and contribute to the dialogue on climate change. Eastside Radio 89.7 FM. Not do-